I would like to look at uh, the 10 oxiding pictures, which is very much part of the Zen tradition. And it's in a way a uh, representation of the path of meditation in pictures. And so in a way, uh, in the ancient time in China, uh, the pictures were created and then also there was some uh, accompanying poem with it and then you have commentary on the poems but I won't do the poem nor the commentary but I just want to look at the pictures and see in a way what can they mean about meditation about the meditative path so very much looking at it from a kind of quite practical point of view in terms of what we're doing here and also what brought us to what we're doing here. So each uh, picture, and the picture, uh, I put them outside, so when you go out, you will be able to look at them. Some of you might know them, they're quite famous. And so each picture has a title. And so the first one is called, I mean, first the story. The story is you have an ox, a cow, a bull, I mean, translated in different way, and then you have a little ox herder looking for the ox. So the first picture is called searching for the ox. So you have the little ox herder looking. And it's kind of like there is mountain, there is water, and flitting here, flitting there. It's kind of like looking for something. To me, this picture is very much when, I would say before we start on the path, I would say what in a way makes us go on this path of meditation is that we feel something is missing. And we, we kind of feel that something, there is something beyond. There is something, something more. Like, for example, there might be some tension, there might be some suffering, and we're looking for some ease. We're looking for something. And so I think, at first, we're very much like the little ox herder. And we flit here, we flit there, we try to find, you know, what is it that's going to help us not to suffer? What is it that's going to, to fill that empty hole? What is it that is going to make us happy in a way? And so we might try to look at it in studies, in things, in partnership, in job, whatever it is. We kind of look for something, look for something different. And... In a way, generally, we will look outside because we'll think something. There must be, it's like the little oxider. There must be something out there which really will bring me happiness. There is really something out there. And I think this is the movement when we realize that actually it is within ourselves because we try the job, we try the study, we try this, we try that. And of course, they bring us happiness. But again, the happiness is fleeting. And so we realize that maybe, in a way, what we're looking for is not so much outside of ourselves, but really within ourselves. And so, and I think this can happen at any ages. I know for myself, I was what really took me on the meditative path is because I wanted to change the world. I wanted to save the world. And then I realized, reading some Buddhist sutta, that maybe before I wanted to change others, I should change myself. And then I realized I could tell myself, don't be egoist, don't be jealous. It had no effect whatsoever. 
So I kind of was looking for something. And if I think a friend of mine who came from a very musical, wealthy family in Switzerland, and she was really quite, had lots of experiences, did lots of things. And then when she was age 60, she felt something was missing in her life. And then she went to Dharamsala in India and then became a nun and lived in a little hut with no comfort whatsoever. And she became a great nun. So in a way, to me, this is what this picture is about, when we're looking for something. Then there is a next picture, and it's called Seeing the Footprint. And then the ox herder sees footprint. And it looks like the ox herder, ox footprint. Not elephant footprint, but it looks like an ox. And to me, is when we, as we look for something, we start to find, in a way, things which are spiritual, things which are meditative. So in a way, we find traces, we find ideas. We read about books, we read about poetry, and we think, wow. You know, I know for myself, when I was looking, you know, and there was these kind of Zen things, and I would read this, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. And I would go, oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know, I would hear this poem, the swallow flies through the sky. They leave no traces. The bamboo shadow sweeps the steps. No dust is turned. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so in a way, we kind of, there is something. We kind of feel there is something within the spiritual. And we kind of attract it. We kind of wonder about it. But in a way, I think there is also a question there with these footprints that the oxerder has to ask, are they old or are they new? <laughs> I mean, did the ox pass 10 years ago or was it yesterday? And in a way for us, the, the print, the footprint of the spiritual that we meet, are they relevant or not? Can they be applied or not? Because I know for myself, when I was uh, 18 and I decided uh, to move from politics into a... Uh, meditation, and at the time, Krishnamurti was very big. So I read Krishnamurti, and uh, I thought, this is great, this is great, I'm going to do this. So I went to the mountain with a blanket, fasting, because it would be easier, and I would do this, you know, because what Krishnamurti would say, you know, no religion, no dogma, no practice, nothing, just look. Just be aware. So I go to the mountain with the book, the blanket. I lasted a day and a half. And I would sit in this beautiful meadow in the Alps, you know. And so I would read the book, and then I would look, look. Nothing happened. And after a day and a half of nothing happening, I decided this did not work for me. I mean. So in a way, I think we see the traces, but in a way, we have to ask, are they relevant or not? Are they meaningful or not? Can I apply them or not? And then there is a next picture, which is one of my favorite, and it's called Seeing the Ox Tail. So you have a bush, and finally the ox sees the ox, but he sees just the bottom of the ox and just a flickering of the tail. 
So again, he just has a, he sees something, but he doesn't see the whole thing. And I think this is when we try to go beyond the words, and we try to practice, and then we might encounter different paths, different methods. And I would say nowadays, there are really many of them. I mean, when I started in 75, you did not have that many things, or you had a few things. But nowadays, it's like a, a spiritual supermarket. I mean, you have so many things. And in a way, I think what is important is not so much what is a, the best method, but is more what is it that fit? What is it that can inspire me? What is it that is meaningful? What is it that is beneficial? Because I know for myself, I tried first, um, this was my weirdest one, I must say. I tried for a week, every evening after work. I was living in London, temping. And in the evening, I would go and hyperventilate naked with a bunch of 20 people. <laughs> and uh, I tried it for a week, but it did not work very well. So I gave that up. And then I took up Taoism by correspondence. And so they, I would kind of get little letters, and they would tell me, you know, to lie on the bed, and then you have to imagine your spirit in the corner of the ceilings. And again, that did not work very well. So I had to kind of give it up. So in a way, again, it's not that these things were bad, but they did not work for me. They work for other people, but for me, it did not work. And so in a way, even within the Buddhist tradition, if you find Buddhism, and then you have many different paths. You might have the Tibetan path, the Theravada path, the Zen path. And again, I think, is what fits. Because often we feel, oh, what is the best? But I think it's more what fits. Because for myself, I encountered Tibetan Buddhism, and for whatever reason, it did not resonate with me. I, I kind of saw the great Lama, Kalo Rinpoche, the Karmapa, and did not do anything. And then I go to Thailand, and I kind of thought the monk were nice, but I thought it was a little kind of a macho, a little patriarchal. So I thought, no, that's not for me either. And so I was lucky, in a way, to, to, to arrive in Korea and to find that for whatever reason, from quite early on, Zen seemed to attract me. They seemed to be a fit. It doesn't mean this is the best method for everybody, but this is a method which fitted me. And so I could, in a way, encounter it. It could be meaningful, I could understand it, and then I could try to do it. And this takes us to the next picture. And this, I feel, is a most powerful picture. It's called Catching the Ox. And there finally the ox herder, he has caught the ox with a rope. But it's very difficult because the ox doesn't want to be caught. So he jumps, and so the oxidus jump. And really, I think this picture to me is nearly the most powerful of the whole ten. Because actually, it's when finally we decide to do something. It's not just words anymore. It's not just being attracted to something. It's that we decide, yes, there is this method, there is this technique, there is this tradition. And I'm really going to do it. I'm really going to try it. And then what is interesting is that when it comes down to it, 
You know, if we move beyond the world, you know, no pinking and choosing and no leaving of traces and whatnot, and then you sit down and you have to ask, what is this? What is this? That is not easy. Because then it's not just abstract. I mean, spiritual things in abstract, is, they're lovely. You know, it's wonderful work, truth, freedom. Yeah, yeah, I want this. But when it comes down to sitting, and I mean, I think you experience this during the week at time, it is not easy. You know, the body and mind, because this is something you do with your whole body and mind. You sit there. And that was my experience in Korea. I mean, when I ended there, I had barely meditated for 20 minutes in some uh, temple in Thailand. And then I get to Korea and then decide to stay and I decide to do the retreat. And it's 10 hours a day, 50 minutes, five zero, and you walk 10 minutes, 10 times. And it was horrible. <laughs> I sat, and it was like I could not breathe, and finally I moved my cushion in front of the door. It was in the summer, so I could look outside. It was a little entertaining. And, you know, (laughs) it was really difficult. And so I would only come to the first sitting. And I would not, the rest of the period, I would do the first sitting. Oh, yeah, I'm going to try this stuff. You know, yeah, 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 I'm trying this stuff. And then after the first sitting, you know, I can't, this is too difficult. Then I would find something better to do. I would, you know, go help in the kitchen, learn Korean. This, at least I'm doing something useful than just sitting there, you know. It's so difficult. And I did this for a few weeks until Master Cousin came to sit with us. And so he was sitting with us in the meditation room. So I thought, oh, you're yeah, sitting with us. I must really, I really tried hard. I really tried to really concentrate and ask the question. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was such hard work. I thought, if he wants to stay, he can. I am off. (laughs) So I went off. And he noticed I went off. So when I came back, the leader of the whole all said, the master said. So we looked in the dictionary together. And I always remembered. Oktiro Chamta. So the master said, you must bear beyond strength. And to me, this really was, I would say, the making of my spiritual path. Because when I read these words, the master said to bear beyond strength. And I thought, well, I mean, they've been doing this for 800 years, and nobody died of it. <laughs> so possibly, you know, I could try to. And from then on, I really tried. And I sit, I sat every city. And actually, within a month, I was the first one to arrive. And so, of course, at the beginning, it is difficult. At the beginning, it feels like such a struggle, the body, the mind. Because in abstract, it's lovely not to grasp, not to pick and choose. But in the reality of sitting there, I mean, for 10, 20, 30 years, we've built certain habits. And in a way, the meditation, confronts us with these habits. So in a way, we have, at the beginning, the struggle with the body. And then once we kind of sit and it's okay to sit, then we start to struggle with the mind, and it's kind of all over the place. And to me, this is, in a way, very important, this picture, of kind of really deciding, I'm going to do this, and then putting energy, putting effort.
Then there is a fifth picture, and it's called Tending the Ox. And so there, it's much easier. The, the ox is still with the rope, but now the ox herder is walking along the ox and holding the rope very loosely, but still holds the rope. And to me, this is when we become familiar with the practice. And there is no more struggle. We can really do it. We know what to do. We know how to do it. And I think this is an important part of the practice, that it's not always about struggling. It's not always difficult. But as we do it, in a way, we get used to it. The body and the mind, we get used to it. And then it becomes easier. It becomes more familiar. We can just do it. And I think this is why that stage also is important in terms of starting to know for ourselves how it is, how it works. Because a lot of the time we think the teacher knows best. But personally, I think each person knows best how to do the practice. And I think this is that stage when we move from fighting and really needing help to really starting to know how to do it. And I remember when I was in, um, in Korea, we used to sit for three months, and then three months we would only sit for four hours, and then we could travel and visit masters and mistresses. And so I used to visit this great master, Master Kyungbong. And so I went to see him, and I walked, you know. I mean, I took a bus, another bus, got to the main temple, then I walked an hour to go to his little temple. So, I mean, you know, I'd worked hard to get there. And so I go there, and he's there, and I bow to him, and I say, Master, Master, how can I make the question vivid? And he just sits there. So, silence. So I wait a bit. He doesn't say a thing. I say, Master, Master, won't you say something? <laughs> And then he looked at me and he says, you already know. And that was it. So I bowed, I came out. So I felt a little short-tenched. I mean, I came all this way. And I got, you know, you only three words, you know already. So, well. And then I realized how, how true it was but I knew already what to do to make the question vivid. The only thing I needed to do was to do it. I knew what to do. I did not need anybody to tell me. I just needed to do it myself. And so I think this picture is also a little about that. But also what is interesting with the picture is about the looseness of the rope. That Oxford is still in a way, holding the ox just in case that it might go off suddenly. And I think at that stage too, although it might seem that it's going well, it's easy, things are easier, it's not struggling anymore, then we might get a moment when actually it is difficult again. That we have to be careful often to have that idea of continuous progress in the meditation that is going to be linear and we're just going up and up to this famous uh, over there awakening. But I think I had this wonderful experience when I was in uh, Korea. At New Year, we used to go and bow to the old monks. 
And so we went to back to these really venerable monks. He was really very, very great practitioner. And so we bowed and we gave our good wishes. And he said, you know the practice. It is like this. And so he had his hand on the table. And he said, you advance a little, then you go back a little. You advance a little more, you go back a little, but you advance a little more. I always remember that image, that actually, yes, we are progressing, we can advance, but then, time to time, we might hit difficult patches. I remember once I was doing one of these three-month retreats, and for two weeks, nothing happened. Nothing whatsoever. And I was practicing really hard, 16 hours a day. I was really keen. And I was trying to raise, what is this? And nothing. Either I would be asleep, either I would have lots of thought, nothing, no question. But I had no choice because, you, you know, you're there for three months. You don't kind of go off and do something else. So I stayed and I continued, continued, continued. And then I heard a talk. And then something shifted. And then the questioning really was really bright, really lively. So I think in a way also to see that we're tending the meditation. And sometimes it will be easy, and sometimes maybe not so. And then, we, then there is a sixth picture. And this is called riding the ox backhoe. And then no more rope. And then the ox herder is on top of the ox, and he's playing the flute. And I love this picture because it's a picture of ease so that it shows the meditation is not always hard work. But also the meditation is about ease, is about lightness, is about freedom, is about creativity, is about joy. And so to me this stage is when things become more fluid. In a way... The ox herder can play the flute because the ox knows the way back home by itself. And it's where, in a way, we sit in meditation and we don't have so much to do it. Because I think it's interesting when we meditate on a retreat like this to, to experience the difference between when I am doing the meditation. And it's always feel a little forced. I am concentrating. I am asking the question. And there is a little... Sometimes it's hard not to have tension in it. And then, suddenly, the meditation does itself. And then it just happens by itself. It just, just does itself. And I think this is very important that we experience that, that it's not always hard work, that it's not always kind of we forcing ourselves, but that there is just this natural rhythm. We kind of just do the meditation. And also that we do the meditation for its own sake and not to get something. Because I think at the beginning, often we do the meditation to get something, to get peace, to get this, to get that, to get some meditative state or whatever it is. But I think this stage is when the meditation, in a way, is enough in itself. And I remember when I was in... A, in Korea, often the people, we were kind of a strange creature. Westerners, there was not so many of them then in Korea, in the monastery. So 
uh, our various embassies, English, American, French, they would come and visit us, you know, they heard we were there, see what we look like, a little kind of tourism, you know. And often they would come and talk to us and whatever, and then at one point they would ask us this question. Because they would ask, what do you do? And we'd say, we see it three mo six months of the year, 10 hours a day, da, da, da. And they would kind of look a little kind of, what, you do this? And then the next question was always, but why do you do this? And so we would kind of look at each other. <laughs> why do we do these strange things? Why? <laughs> why? And then I had to answer, and I would say, ah, just to do it, just to meditate. This is why we do it. Because there was a, when you do it in that way, you really feel this is a thing to do. This is the only thing to do at that moment. And you don't actually have this great expectation. You're going to get this or get that. You just do it for its own sake. Then there is the next picture, number seven. And it's called Forgetting the Ox. The person rests alone. So the ox disappears. All this work. Now the ox disappears. And then you have a little hut. And you have the moon, and you have this little kind of person sitting there gazing at the moon. And to me, this is very much when, in a way, we stop to have a separation from spirituality and daily life, from meditation and daily life. When actually, it becomes spiritual, non-spiritual, you don't make this separation anymore. And you start to see not the meditation as a separate exotic activity, but you really see that what we do here is a training so that then we meditate in daily life. We meditate when we work, we meditate in whatever we do. And I think this is also what is important on a retreat like this, that there is also work, there is also resting period, so that you can do things ordinarily, things ordinary things, and bring that meditative things to it. And so then to me is when meditation becomes more natural. It's just a certain awareness, a certain wakefulness, a certain resting in the moment. Then there is a next picture. And in the next one, the ox and the ox herder are both forgotten. And so there you just have one of these famous Zen circle, just a circle. But this is only the eighth picture, remember that. So first, we have to be careful. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol. It's not kind of, we don't become literally like a circle. But in a way, it's very much about letting go. It is very much about emptiness. It's very much about letting go. And I think that's when we start to experience a certain letting go. Because to me, again, as I said before, meditation is about the grasping. And generally, we hold on so tight. And I think at that stage, we start to experience letting go, degrasping. Once on the retreat, I had this uh, very interesting experience, and I really saw how let go happened. We cannot force ourselves to let go. But it happens through the influence of meditation. And so I was doing one of these three months retreat, and I had a job. It was in, at a nunnery. 
And I had the job. My job was to wash the bathroom at 4 o'clock every afternoon. And it was a small meditation hall, so not so many people. But at 4 o'clock every afternoon, there was a nun in the bathroom washing. It was a communal bathroom. <laughs> she was in the way. So, of course, I asked, can't you wash at another time? She said, no, 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 I have to go and chant, I must be clean. So I couldn't do anything there. So what was interesting, I was sitting, you know, what is this, what is this? And then every day, I would see her at 4 o'clock, oh, she's here again, really, and I can't do this, and I would kind of, you know, get upset. Then at the end, I would uh, not be upset anymore, back to sitting, then 4 o'clock, upset again, she's there again. And it went on for two weeks. And then one day, I went at 4 o'clock, and she was there, and I was there, and it was totally fine. And I saw, and to me, that experience of not grasping was such a revelation to see, ah, and in a way, I did not do anything. I did not tell myself, you must not be angry, da, da, da. No. It was very interesting, that experience, your same condition, and I was not reacting to it in the same way. And to me, this is very much what this picture is about, is when there is this less I, me, mine, and we more actually with the flow of our condition meeting the outer conditions. And also we're not so reduced to our feeling, to our thought, and we more have that experience of this kind of more complexity of our existence, meeting the complexity of the world. And so in a way to be careful because often we feel that this is the aim, emptiness, you know, that this total letting go, and that this is it, this is the end of the path. But that's not the end of the path, this is only the eighth picture. And uh, when I was in Korea, we had these monks, three monks, who decided to do a very heavy practice. They went to a hermitage, and they were practicing all day, all night. And then one of them, after three weeks of that, had an experience, amazing experience of emptiness. <gasps> Everything is empty. Emptiness, this is it, I got it, I am awakened. So he ran down the path, he goes to see Master Cousin and he said, everything is empty, I experience emptiness. So Master Cousin took his heavy stick, hit him, and said, hey, you see, not everything is empty. <laughs> Go back and practice more. But he did not believe him. So he goes to the next master. Next master does exactly the same thing. So he doesn't believe him. He goes to the third. And same thing. So finally he said, okay, I go back to practice. Because you still have two more pictures. The ninth is called returning to the original place. And there, generally it's a picture of either kind of a cherry blossom or plum blossom, but something of nature. And I think it shows us that there is one stage further from the emptiness. The emptiness is not that there is this thing, kind of emptiness, where we're going to all fall into, but it's more that de-grasping, that actually things are more loose. And so in a way, it's more, this picture of nature is more about interconnection, interdependence, that there is not so much separation between ourselves and the world. 
And in a way, it's kind of really starting to be more. And to me, this is very important, not to see the meditation as this kind of self-reference, but to see that the meditation is actually to make and loosen our hold on ourselves. So then we can really open to the world and really connect to the world which is around us. And I think this picture is very much about that. <clears throat> and then there is a tenth picture, which is called appearing in the marketplace with gifts. And then you have a big fat monk, raggedy fat monk, and then the little oxerger, and the fat monk has this big bag full of goodies. And then in the bag there is kind of like kind of a little painting of a marketplace of a few houses. And so in a way, again, to show that in a way, again, the emptiness is not the end and just to be connected with everything is not the end. But that, then there is this active, responsive kind of activity that actually we go back into the world. That what you're doing in the meditation now is not, of course, it will help you, but it's also to help others to help you in a way to be more compassionate, to be more wise in your relationship, in the way you respond, in the way you relate to the world. And what is interesting about the picture is that the monk is raggedy because in a way as a means to adapt to eye and law. And very much this idea of things being appropriate, of skillfully being wise and compassionate. And to me, this is very important to see that compassion is not just a feeling, but actually it's also a wise compassion and a wise, responsive compassion. What is it that is needed? And so in a way, it needs this listening to other people. What is it that they need? What is it that I can give them? Not what I think is best for them. But what is really, what do they need? Can I give it to them? And also, can I have the space to respond to them. I mean, uh, some time ago, we're now living in this little uh, village in uh, France, and I thought there was this wonderful moment, I would say, of creative wisdom in action, creative wise compassion in action. You had Stephen going up to buy some wine, and you had the mayor of the village going to a meeting. So they were both going in the same, one coming down, the other one going up, going about their business. And just at that moment, a little dog of the old lady ne next door to us got hit by the car. And then he rushed into a place by a pond. And then straight away, the two of them, the mayor and Stephen, went into action. The mayor went to rescue the dog from not kind of drowning in the pond, and Stephen took the dog and the lady to the vet. And that was that. I mean, they had other things to do. But they left everything in order to just respond in that moment to the situation. To me, this is very important, that, that part of that kind of responsiveness to situation. All the time, you, you don't know. I mean, there there was a good result. All the time, you don't know. Uh, one time, I was in Bristol talking with two friends, same age, same aspect as me, small, kind of... And we are talking on the pavement. And suddenly we hear noise. And we look. And there is this two young guy hitting each other up. 
And we look at each other and we think, we must do something. <laughs> so the three of us go and say, you can't do this. You must not fight. You must discuss. <laughs> and they stopped. <laughs> so at least they stopped beating each other there and then. But I thought, hmm, they might beat each other up apart from us somewhere else. <laughs> Don't know about that. Or... If I think of friends of ours who in South Africa, we go there regularly. And they have, uh, over time, slowly, slowly, they've instituted this program for a prisoner, for prisoner to do meditation in the prison. And they even manage to do a Zen retreat in the prison. They go in the prison, and it's amazing. I mean, slowly, slowly, they've managed to implement this. And now, last time I was there, one of the prisoners who had been there for 10 years and been meditating for them for five years, he got out. And it really made such a difference to his life to have done the meditation program in the prison. And then now he continued to go to the center and he's really going to change his life. So in a way, I think it's each of us has to find in our own way. And to me, that's what I would hope this meditation that you're doing now will help you that when you go back into your life, you can be more creatively, wisely, compassionately responsive. And the last thing is about these pictures. It's very important to see that personally, I don't think that they are linear. You start at one, two, three, four, and you go to the end, compassion. But personally, I think they are like a spiral. That actually, we go up, but often we might come back to a previous picture. So we might go up, and then we might come back to the first one, thinking, hmm, something is missing in my practice. Or come back to the fourth one, oh, this is really tough. Or come back to just being compassionate. And I think it's very important to see that actually we might, even during this week, each of you might have gone, actually, through the 10th picture, and even back again. So. That's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? I have a question about sudden awakenings or sudden breakthroughs. I, I know it's in some Zen retreats, the, the people who teach the retreats uh, encourage an expectation of some sort of sudden, sudden event. And you don't do that. I'm curious about your Yes, because ah, we come <clears throat> from the dreaded. You see, uh, in the Zen tradition, you have uh, what you... You have this idea of sudden awakening, sudden practice. Or, I mean, you have four types, but the main types are sudden awakening, sudden practice, sudden awakening, gradual practice. And so most of the Zen people, if they are true to the tradition, they will be into sudden, sudden. Sudden awakening, sudden practice. And, uh, but what is interesting is that in our monastery, 
in Korea. It was one of the rare monasteries which was into sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. And this came actually from a development which happened in the 10th-12th century with Tsumi, and then with Li Tungshuan, and then with Chinu, who was a master who founded our temple. So our temple and our master too were actually talking about you have a sudden awakening, you have a sudden breakthrough, which is then followed by gradual practice because that you have to kind of, in a way, make it organic. And then you can have, again, sudden awakening, then again followed by gradual practice. So, because personally, I, yeah, you can have a, a sudden breakthrough. And sometimes you have some retreat where well, more like kind of a, it's kind of like a self-confrontation. So you see 12 hours a day, non-stop, you don't have any rest, and you push, 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 you know. And if you're in Japan, you know, if it's in winter, they will open the window so you are even colder. And if it's in summer, they will close the window so you're even hotter. And then the only way to get out is samadhi, is a high state of concentration. I have nothing against it. <laughs> but personally, I don't find and this is what I want to talk a little about on the last day. You see, you have all these people who have all these breakthroughs. I mean, the worst book to read, if you want to read about this, is The Three Pillar of Zen of Kaplo Roshi. This is the worst book to read. You read it and you think, I must be awakened yesterday. You know, it's kind of they have all this awakening experience. But you see, you, you have a breakthrough, which personally, the way I would interpret it is just you have a letting go. You know, at that moment, you don't grasp, and so you experience yourself differently. But generally, it's extremely momentary. And when you go out, it doesn't seem to make a big difference in terms of your habits and patterns. And to me, that's why the... I don't know why I ended up in Song Guangsa, which is sudden gradual, because it totally fits with what makes sense to me, in a way. That actually, people, you come here, you're not monks and nuns, and at the end of the retreat, you're going back to your daily life, you're going back to work in very ordinary life. And to me, in a way, what is important is that de-grasping, that slowly, slowly, slowly de-grasping, not this one bang, and wow, I am awakened. Well... I mean, you maybe were awakened for a minute, but after that, you're back to, you know, being really kind of, you know... I mean, Buddhas are also sentient beings. You know? And I'll talk, I mean, I'll bring a few quotes on uh, the last night talking about that, actually, because I'm interested in it. But this is the main reason, I would say, is because we come from a family which is into sudden gradual, and also both of us, we think it makes more sense in terms of meditation and daily life, this more sudden, sudden breakthrough, sudden letting go, and more this gradual practice. So that's why we don't put so much emphasis on it, and also why we don't push, 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 because uh, we don't see so much the point in those terms. Okay, so if there is... Nothing else. Push, push, push is a boy's thing. <laughs> I mean, Steve.
Stephen is a boy, he's not into it either. Because <laughs> Stephen did it. You see, Stephen, the first time he arrived in Korea, before he had been with the Tibetan, and they did not do much meditation at all. And Stephen arrived just before the summer retreat. And that summer retreat, the guys, the Korean guys, for whatever reason, decide to do a hard practice. And a hard practice means that they're going to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, they're going to go to bed at 10 o'clock, which means they will only have four hours sleep, and they will sleep 14 hours. And Stephen had to do that for three months. And halfway through, the Korean guys call me. You have to say something to this English person. <laughs> I say, what's the matter? And they say, well, every morning at 2 o'clock, he goes, oh! and this is extremely dispiriting. Can he stop? <laughs> but he did it. He did his uh, hard practice. And after that, never again. He always kind of tempered the enthusiasm of anybody who wanted to do that. So he did it. So now there is a walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.